Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium... Welcome aboard. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we try to make sure you're up to date on what happens in the world of science. We separate sense from nonsense, try to keep you out of the clutches of the charlatans. Uh, Joining me today is uh, uh, Jonathan Jerry, my colleague, and we have a special show coming up. We have a great guest. Abby Langer is a registered dietitian. She'll speak to us from Toronto. We're going to chat about the movie, uh, The Game Changers. We'll also take a look at keto diets. We'll take a look at some multi-level marketing by a company called Juice Plus. But first, it is the holiday season. And uh, Hanukkah and Christmas just happened to coincide this year. So I was kind of wondering what we could talk about that links these holidays. Here's a candidate. How about olives? Olive oil played a very important part in the Hanukkah story. Around 200 BC, Israel came under the rule of the Syrian king Antiochus, who wanted to obliterate the Jewish religion. Yehuda Maccabee led a revolution against the Syrians, and with an army of only 6,000, defeated an army of 47,000 men. Eventually, the Maccabees liberated Jerusalem and reclaimed the Holy Temple, which had to be rededicated by lighting the menorah, the continuous burning of which symbolized the union of the different types of Jews and the eternal presence of God. Only the purest olive oil was used for this purpose, and only a little bit was found in the temple. It would take at least eight days to prepare some more. Nevertheless, the menorah was lit, and by miracle, that little bit of oil burned for eight days until more oil had been prepared. Celebration of Hanukkah by Jews around the world commemorates the victory over persecution. It would be most appropriate to use olive oil, but for simplicity, candles are lit. Christmas and olives are also linked. After all, the birth of Christ took place near the Mount of Olives, and olive trees are all over the Holy Land. Olives were a common food at the time, and of course are still widely consumed in the Middle East. It's a good thing. We're learning that olive oil is one of the best oils, composed mostly of monounsaturated fats that do not increase your blood cholesterol. Indeed, epidemiological studies of Mediterranean populations show that increased intake of olive oil is associated with a decrease in heart disease and even cancer despite higher fat intake. In Spain and Greece, women who eat the most monounsaturated fat have the lowest level of breast cancer. A Swedish study of over 60,000 women found that increased intake of monounsaturated fat at the rate of 10 grams per day, that's roughly one tablespoon of olive oil, reduced breast cancer risk. So that gives those latkes fried in olive oil into a brand new perspective. Now we just have to work on making that Christmas fruitcake with olive oil. But many a Christmas party features olives anyway, both green and black. Green olives are not ripe and are very bitter unless they are soaked in an alkaline solution which is done commercially. If left on the tree, green olives will eventually turn black, but in most cases they are artificially blackened through a chemical treatment with oxygen and iron compounds such as ferrous gluconate, same chemical used in most iron supplements. Olives contain compounds called tannins, and these react with ferrous ions to form a black complex, resulting in shiny black skin. I recall once going to a party when I asked a fellow guest to pass me the plate of black olives. He looked at me disdainfully. Those aren't olives, he murmured. Olives are green. 
Those are plums. At this point, I didn't want to get into an argument, so I just said, if you think they are plums, try one. He did, and immediately spat it out. Worst plums I ever ate, he snorted. Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah. All right, in studio with me is uh, Jonathan Jerry, my uh, colleague, uh, one of our science communicators. And uh, uh, we, of course, uh, battled nonsense together. So, Jonathan, how did you first get interested in this business? Oh, boy. Uh, how did I get interested in science communication? Well, uh, I was I was studying for my PhD, actually, in human genetics. And, you know, as you know, when you do these, these grad studies, you're in a laboratory and you're doing research. And I was seeing things there, uh, how scientific research was being conducted, that I was not very happy with. Uh, because we often forget that science, you know, with the capital S is wonderful. It's one of the best uh, set of tools that we have to figure out, you know, what's real, what's not about the world around us. But the science that is being practiced in laboratories is, is, is part of this system that we have. And there are incentives. We're incentivizing people to do this and not to do that. And so I was noticing a lot of things that I was not very happy with. This was also at the same time as um, we were uh, learning about this replication crisis in, in science. This was all over the mainstream media, uh, that a lot of scientific articles were not being uh, reproduced. Scientists were trying to redo the experiments and couldn't get the same results. And so um, I, I wanted to to talk to the public about having a an appropriate set of expectations towards scientific research because research is great, but as we all know from looking at headlines, you know one one week canola oil is great for you, the next one it's not. Uh, so what is going on there? Well, at the bottom of of all this is, is sometimes you know bad sloppy science. So I wanted to show people the difference between good science, bad science, and outright pseudoscience. Yeah, and uh, of course, uh, you've done a very good job with that because you also do a podcast uh, yes. with uh, our other colleague, Chris Labos. And um, you have guests on there, discuss all kinds of interesting uh, stuff. And, you know, this this business of science uh, communication, I think, uh, has certainly increased in importance. Uh, I've seen this in increase in importance, you know, throughout my career as people are asking more and more questions, which, of course, they should be doing. And uh, there's this tsunami of information that comes at us. On, on, people on are getting basis. very confused. I mean, especially when it comes to health. Uh, and in part, it's because we have all these fake experts uh, who start blogs and YouTube channels and podcasts, and they they spew nonsense, and, and they're very good at spewing and nonsense. They're very good yeah. at it, and so the public at the end of the day is like, well, I don't know whom to trust anymore. And it's especially confusing when some of those people have legitimate degrees, whether it's a PhD Indeed. or a medical degree. Yeah. And people think that just because you have a medical degree, they can put you up on that pedestal and uh, just listen to all the utterings. Indeed. And many of those utterings, of course, are full of. Uh, we had a, a nutrition expert on, a, on our podcast, A Body of Evidence, who was saying whenever she sees a, nut a nutrition book written by an MD, she just chucks it and puts it aside. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's, uh, I think it's understandable because, of course, their training is, is not in that, uh, that area. Exactly. But there's a lot of money to be made. And, there is. Uh, you know, there, there are and it's also easy to delude yourself. I mean, you know, if, if you have a particular experience, you can go and you can find scientific articles that seemingly show that you're right and you can ignore the one. Uh, that show that you're wrong and you, you, you create this narrative that seems to be evidence-based but it's just an exercise in cherry-picking. Absolutely. And we can say that uh, countries where more chocolate is consumed uh, have more, more Nobel, Nobel Prize prizes. winners, right? Yep, yep. And you can draw a graph and show that that is, that is uh, certainly true. Indeed. All right, we're going to take a little bit of a break. 
maybe snack on chocolate so that we can or increase olives. our intellect or olives and increase our intellectual strength and our and our health. And after that, we'll be back chatting with Abby Langer, who's a registered dietitian. We're going to talk about this uh, movie that is uh, on the internet now on on Netflix uh, called The Game Changers. It's been getting a lot of attention. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Doctor Joe Show on CJAD eight hundred. As I mentioned, my guest today is Abby Langer. Uh, she's a registered dietitian. She is right now in Toronto. Uh, she was educated at the Dalhousie University in Halifax. And uh, I started looking at Abby's work when uh, I was doing a review of this new movie, which is on uh, Netflix called The Game Changers. And uh, I came across some of uh, Abby's writings, and it looked to me like uh, we're a kindred spirits in terms of trying to fi- fight uh, nonsense. And uh, I liked uh, Abby's sort of uh, the, the logo on her webpage. It says, don't mess with science. So I asked Abby to come on and uh, chat about some of the interesting things that are going on these days in the world of, of nutrition. I also have in studio with me my colleague Jonathan Jerry, who may pipe in uh, into this discussion at, at some time. So, um, uh, Abby. Uh, hi. Hi. The, uh, the movie, Game Changers, it, it has been uh, getting a lot of attention. Uh, people have been talking about it, both pro and con. I, I think uh, both of us kind of have the view that, uh, well, there is some truth in there about uh, uh, the environment and animal agriculture not being the best thing for the environment. I think they all also overstress the point that uh, if you're a vegan, uh, then uh, you somehow automatically uh, improve your athletic performance. And the the basic theme of this movie is exactly that. To me, it looked like a, a two-hour promo for veganism. And uh, I don't have anything against veganism. I think, uh, you know, vegans can have a very, very healthy life. But what bothered me about this movie was that they selected a few athletes who happen to be vegan and uh, who are good performers, and they kind of linked the two. And uh, I think that for every one of those, one can find a few hundred uh, uh, carnivorous performers (laughs) who are, uh, you know, just as good. So uh, what was your take on the movie? You know, just like you, I do promote a plant-centric diet or one that is heavy in plants. Um, Excuse me. But I agree that The Game Changers was, it it was just a a mess of fear tactics, fear-mongering, bad science um, that really didn't uh, use truth to promote its message. And you know, I, I think if people want to become vegans, that's wonderful. But I never want someone to change their diet because they're scared into doing it. And I think that was, unfortunately, the angle that the Game Changers took. I think that is uh, absolutely correct. And there was a lot of very, very cherry-picked um, information right. in there. And, uh, you know, certainly it is true that there are some athletes who are excellent athletes and happen to be vegan. But that's an association, I think, to Oh, yeah, for sure. It's, you know, and we're all different. But, and I think, and most of us aren't athletes. Um, But some of the things that they were saying, for example, um, people who eat a diet high in animal protein uh, are 75% more likely to die 
from all causes or, you know, our bodies aren't built for an animal-based diet. It's absolutely, it's malarkey. I mean, it's not even true. And what you say about, like, cherry-picking evidence, the evidence they used was so bad, and it's they presented as truth. And the layperson doesn't understand that. So what they see is that, you know, they should become vegan or else they're going to die. It's very unfair, actually. Yeah, what I found particularly amusing was when they focused in on the uh, American bicycle racer, and they were looking at this uh, uh, team team race where there are three uh, members on each team, and they go around the track. And uh, one of them was uh, a vegan. One in the, one of the three in the American was a vegan. And uh, she was, I think, 39 or 40 years old. They made a big deal out of the fact that she was that age and competing in the Olympics, when, in fact, there are many athletes around that age who have competed in the Olympics. And uh, because the American team won that race by something less than a second, yeah. uh, they kind of inferred that that was because she was a vegan. And she was only one yeah. of the three members of that team, and the difference <clears throat> was less than a second. It's a pretty big uh, jump to suggest that that is because of her diet. But that's essentially the whole the whole MO of the movie. Take somebody who's a vegan, don't tell us any background information like, you know, how how much has she worked out in the past three days? Maybe her muscles, you know, are primed and ready and the other people aren't. Um, maybe, you know, she has a different life. It, there's other factors for, in order to perform like she did. There's other factors just besides your diet. But they don't tell us any of that. Um, so, And then they overblow the fact that she wins by however millionth of a second and say, you know, see, she's a vegan and she won. But they really, there's a dearth of information that, you know, about everything, all other aspects about their diet and her diet and their lifestyle. And so they're basically just cherry picking and showing us something that it, it, it appears to be true, but it probably isn't. Yeah, the only positive thing about the movie I found was that they made some good points about animal agriculture uh, not being an environmentally friendly business, but we all know that. We right. All know that. Okay, uh, Abby, let's let's move along. Uh, there are many irritants out there to to us who work in the world of science. Uh, okay, you know yeah. that the public is exposed to in the area of food and nutrition. And uh, I know that you've also written about uh, multi-level marketing companies. Yeah. And uh, one particular one, Juice Plus, right. uh, which has been around a long time. And a they have various time. various kind of uh, vegetable-infused supplements and powders and, and all kinds of other uh, products. Uh, right. For me, any time that I look at multi-level marketing companies, the red flag goes up. Uh, because what they are really selling, uh, I think, is not really the product. What they are selling is a, a scheme to make money. The product is Agreed. almost almost irrelevant. So yeah. uh, what? Uh, I know that you've not uh, written all that favorably about multi-level marketing companies, and particularly Juice Plus. So what? What? Uh, uh, what irritated you about that? Uh, you know that uh, marketing angle. You know, <clears throat> it's always the claims that irritate me the most about these products. Um, yes, it's multi-level marketing, but the claims that these products or the people who sell them make are absolutely outrageous. 
Juice Plus, for example, is famous for telling people that their products can prevent and cure cancer. Um, that is unconscionable that they would say that. But they also claim one of the big claims about Juice Plus or that Juice Plus makes is that it's equivalent to fruits and vegetables. It is absolutely not. So, you know, if you're going to prey on vulnerable people, you're in my black book forever. And, you know, certainly the cancer, people with cancer or who um, have had cancer, they are a vulnerable population. And I see a lot of these supplements doing that exact thing. It's preying on them and their vulnerability to sell products. And, you know, I just think, you know, the claims about the nutrition of Juice Plus are overblown and untrue. There's no relevant research to support them. Yet they, like all other supplement companies, talk about their product as if those claims are reality, as if they hold some sort of uh, credibility, and they absolutely do not. So that's what bothers me the most. These people are making money out of lying. Yeah, and uh, of course, what what they are peddling here is a simple solution to what are complex nutritional issues. And it's sort of inviting uh, for people to think that uh, instead of uh, going out and shopping for your fruits and vegetables and washing them and chopping them and making them into a delightful salad, you can just take a spoonful of this powder and down it and get the same nutritional benefits. And also what, what I find troubling is that they do get some spokespeople who seem to be uh, uh, knowledgeable because they have a medical degree. I'm talking about Dr. Bob Sears, uh, who's oh. uh, you know who, who crops up in many many questionable enterprises. He is enterprises. very disreputable. Though. He's, you know he's a he's an anti-vaxer. Oh, uh, uh, he's terrible. And to me, someone who's an anti-vaxer uh, already, as you say, is is in the in the bad books immediately. Yeah. I, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, I mean, Juice Plus is uh, questionable. I mean, certainly it, it's not uh, toxic or anything like that. But people are, I think, wasting their money instead of buying the fruits and vegetables. Anyway, Abby, we've got to take a little bit of a break. We'll sure. come back and then we'll chat about the intermittent diets that are becoming very popular. You're listening sure. to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. I'm back with uh, Abby Langer. We were, uh, she's a registered dietitian, uh, has a website. Uh, Abby, you want to mention your website in case people want to look things up, which they should? Yep, it's abbylangernutrition.com. Easy to remember. So we were chatting before about various things, about a multi-level marketing company, Juice Plus, and uh, also about The Game Changers, which is a movie on uh, on, on Netflix. And uh, uh, Jonathan wants to... Uh, kick in here. Yeah, I had a question for you. Uh, so Game Changers, you know, uh, yet another food documentary on Netflix uh, that comes from a very, very specific perspective and that is cherry picking the data to fit their philosophy. Are you aware of any food documentaries on Netflix that are actually evidence based and that do not cherry pick in service of, of some ideology? You know, I would hate to say I am not. I, I hate to say I'm not aware of any, but I really am not. That doesn't mean they don't exist, though. But the ones that have been publicized and over and over again, like the Game Changers, um, are definitely not evidence-based. And so I'm sure there's good stuff on there, but none of the, none of the really popular ones are. Yeah, but because it is becoming so easy to produce a slick-looking documentary that only tells half the story, right? Yeah. 
And people listen. It's really scary. It's really, really scary. Well, Jonathan, there was at least one good documentary on Netflix, right? That we a, know a about. A docu-series, yes. <laughs> it was called The User's Guide to Cheating Death with Timothy Caulfield, and now it's gone. I was on that. You were? Oh, oh I yes. thought I recognized your name. Oh, me too. Yeah. So we have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, well we, we have both been erased from Netflix. I know. It's yeah. very sad. But, um, but yeah, that, I mean, that's... Fantas- anything Tim Caulfield does is fantastic. Yes, it, it is. Uh, well, Tim is one of our uh, favorites, and we we uh, work together uh, quite a bit. All right. Uh, so much talk these days about intermittent fasting. Uh, yeah, many popular. different kinds. You know, there, there's the 5-2, where people eat sort of normally for five days and then restrict their intake for two days. Or the fast, where you don't eat anything from 6 o'clock at night to late next morning. Uh, all of these. Uh, and um, I'm sure, as you will agree, one thing they have in common is that they all cut down on calories. Right. That's why it works. So what do you think uh, about the different types of uh, intermittent diets? And uh, is there a reason for anyone to give them a shot? You know, it's, it's one tool in the toolbox for people to be healthy. And I think that we shouldn't just say, well, intermittent fasting, it's, it's not good. It's you know, it won't work or whatnot. If you, the only person, the only group of people who I would say should never do it are obviously like pregnant women and children, but um, people who have an eating disorder or who have a history of an eating disorder are at risk for an eating disorder. Otherwise, um, you know, if you're interested in it, I, There's no harm in trying it. Um, I personally do not eat breakfast. I start eating at noon and I try to stop eating at 8. doesn't always work. I'm not that rigid with my diet uh, as a whole, but I I think it does help some people just like, you know, the keto diet helps some people and, you know, intuitive eating helps some people. It's one tool in the toolbox of eating patterns. Do we do we have any data on adherence to this diet versus other types of diets? So how many how easy is it to stick to it versus some other kind of, you know, low carb, low fat diet? You know, I think the data is that the more restrictive it is, the harder it is to stick to. Right. In general, um, it, it, I believe the data says that um, intermittent fasting is easier to stick to, but that only accounts for one type of intermittent fasting. I mean, I believe it was 8 and, eight and uh, 16, but... I mean, if you're doing what some people do is a 4 and 20, which they eat for four hours and then don't eat for 20 hours, I would say that that probably doesn't have the same level of, um, I I would say it has more attrition. That would be pretty challenging, I would think. Yeah, and it would really impact your social and emotional well-being as well, which are very important, just as important, I think, as your physical well-being. So you have to really think about the impact of of your any kind of eating program um, on your physical, emotional, social, financial health. Because if one of those things goes awry, you're not going to stick to the plan. And that's a problem. Like the best way of eating is the one that you can stick to. So, 
you know, that really, those things have to be considered. Well, one of the marketing sort of tools that are used to, to push these intermittent diets are, are the animal studies. And there are some interesting ones that I looked at with mice. Right. Where they restrict... Well, we're not mice. Uh, yeah, we're not mice, yeah, and we're not rats, with, with a few exceptions. But uh, right. <laughs> uh, but uh, what uh, they have shown in mice is that when they restrict the hours uh, and still give them the same amount of food and same n- number of calories, uh, you know, in a short period of time as opposed to a longer period of time, uh, there is a difference in, in, in weight. But again, that's that's mice, and you know I, I have not seen any studies in in humans. Anyway, we uh, mentioned before the keto diets, and I'm sure that you get a lot of questions yep. about that. I mean, people are jumping on that bandwagon. Many of them, of course, uh, yeah. eventually fall off. So a what, lot of people eventually fall off. Yeah, what have you it's seen in tough. terms of of uh, long term? I, I think none of us contest the fact that over a short term, over a few months, you you go on a keto diet, sure. you will lose weight, and that's yeah. uh, that's no doubt. Yeah. But uh, what have you seen in in terms of counseling people? Let's say what after a year, what happens? I don't. I have never counseled anybody who's been on a keto diet for over a year. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, it's just very tough. I've counseled a lot of people who've tried the keto diet and couldn't handle it for more than three months. Um, And that's long. And I think that is a typical experience. But there are people who do it for the long term. And this is the thing. I think maybe maybe 10% of the population can deal with a restrictive diet like that and, and be successful on it. And that is okay. But the rest of us need something a little bit more moderate. That's okay, too. Again, it's, keto is like one tool in the toolbox. Um, it's great for people who uh, are, have high blood sugars or have blood sugars that are uh, really tough to control. Um, it's great for people who don't really live to eat, but rather eat to live. I don't know any of those people. I'm not friends with any of those people. But, yes, um, there are people who are like that, who don't care about, you know, not having birthday cake on their birthday or, you know, don't care about how a diet impacts their social life. Um, but the keto diet, like I wouldn't say that nobody should try it. You just have to be a particular type of person to be successful on it. Of I course, had, yeah. I had ahead. a quick quick, uh, quick question. Sure. Uh, for, for people who are trying to lose weight or who need to lose weight, uh, have yes. you found any tricks on how to deal with hunger? Because that seems to be the thing that sort of kicks you off the, the diet. Like, how, how do you deal with right. the hunger? You shouldn't be hungry. You shouldn't (laughs) be hungry. So, I mean, I think there's there's a couple uh, things that I explore with people. So if somebody is trying to lose weight and they're always hungry, I first look and see if they're eating enough. Because if you are constantly hungry... You, you shouldn't have to be constantly hungry to lose weight. And if you're constantly hungry, that will lead you inevitably to overeating. It will, you'll be, you'll, you're cutting your calories too much and it will lead to rebound eating, which is a huge problem. So, um, and being hungry all the time is not only not fun, but it's, I think, one of the main reasons why people fail to lose weight because they go too restrictive. Um, if So we usually add in more food. Um, and what I also talk about with people is, is hunger in terms of like stomach hunger or um, 
so if you're really hungry or you're you think you're hungry because it's out of habit you're eating because um out of habit or out of emotion there's so many different kinds of hunger um true hunger is when your stomach rumbles but um and you feel it in your the pit of your stomach we all know true hunger actually some people don't because they've been on a diet for so long okay abby hang on um, for a minute we've got to take a little bit of a break but a couple of other questions i want to ask you sure we're chatting with Abby Langer, who's a registered dietitian. She's in Toronto, and uh, she doesn't want anyone to mess with science, and neither do we. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Our guest today is a registered dietitian, Abby Langer. We're talking about different kinds of diets. We chatted about uh, the movie, The Game Changers, talked about keto diets uh, and uh, Juice Plus, which is a multi-level marketing company. Uh, these days, there's so much focus on, on meat eating. And we chatted a little bit about this in, in context of the movie, uh, because that, was, of course, was a promo for veganism. But I'm sure you're getting a lot of questions these days about should we eat meat or should not, or should we not eat meat? And it seems to go back and forth. And uh, just uh, last month, we had that series of papers in the Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, which kind of suggested, uh, whoa, whoa, forget all of this talk, uh, just keep eating meat way we've always been eating and that generated a lot of controversy and back and forth so uh, i'm sure that you've been asked questions about that yes definitely and my answer my answer is always the same eat it's fine if you do not want to eat meat but eating moderate amounts of meat is not going to harm your health um you know yes if you eat meat three times a day you know, hamburgers from Wendy's and whatever, like a rack of lamb every day, you're probably going to have some health problems or you may have some health problems. But you can't include meat in a diet, in your diet, and not suffer any consequences. I don't think we should be afraid of eating meat, um, but I don't think we eat enough plants to balance it out. Yeah, and you know sometimes um, vegans, uh, I think, go overboard with trying to push their regimen. And you know, when I was watching the Game Changers movie, I was watching this, and I said, you know, this to me sniffs of Michael Greger. Uh, oh, I'm your Michael, friend. Yes, Michael Greger is a physician and yeah. uh, a zealot for veganism. Uh, he is the master of, of uh, cherry-picking data. You know, we use that expression. Uh, we've used it many times on this program because, uh, of course, this is what these people do. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It just means that they're not showing the other side of the coin. And so I was sniffing Michael Greger all over that movie. And yeah. sure enough, when the credits roll around, there he is as the chief <laughs> consultant. <laughs> he yeah, he yes. wasn't mentioned in the movie itself, but, but uh, there he was. Yeah. Um, uh, Abby, um, uh, coconut, coconut oil, coconut fat yeah. comes up all the time uh, all because, again, this is promoted as a miracle by some people and as a devil because of the saturated fat content by others. W what do you say? It's all natural, right? Absolutely. It's all natural. Um, so coconut oil is uh, a fat that is mainly saturated. Uh, it's, it, has, it contains a lot of medium-chain triglycerides that are metabolized the same way as long-chain triglycerides, which are in many other fats. However, I think that people are overblowing the so-called benefits of coconut oil. 
Coconut oil really doesn't have any benefits. I wouldn't take tablespoons of it. I wouldn't, you know, swish my mouth with it or cook everything with it. I use coconut oil along with butter, along with canola oil, along with olive oil. Uh, I think the, the overarching recommendation that I have for fats is that a healthy diet has a variety of fats, everything except for trans fats, but all kinds of fats. So if you want to use coconut oil, if you like to cook with it, sure, use coconut oil, but don't use it for everything. Include some monounsaturated fats in there, like olive oil, um, like avocado oil, and mix it up. Uh, luckily, in Canada now, the government has come out uh, with a uh, recommendation, not a recommendation, actually, they've uh, said that uh, industry cannot purposefully produce uh, trans fats and put hydrogenated right. fats into, into the food, which is uh, really, uh, I, I think, uh, a step in the right direction. Let right. me ask you this. I, this is a question I like to ask when we have uh, experts uh, on the show. Uh, you've, you've been in practice for a while now, right? Yes. Uh, based upon everything that you've learned during your years of, of uh, working in the area of nutrition, what personal changes have you made in your diet and your lifestyle? What personal changes? I listen more to my diet, or you're talking to personal changes to my diet? Yeah, in in general, to you know, lifestyle factors based on you know your your looking at the scientific literature. I've relaxed a lot. I eat what I love. I don't eat it too much all the time, but I have relaxed about the food that I eat and the variety of food that I consume. I mean, I think that I used to be very regimented and, you know, very afraid to eat food like um, carbs or fats or whatever, depending on what year it was. But now I understand that nothing bad is going to happen to me if I have a slice of birthday cake or, you know, if I have some chocolate or whatnot. And, you know, I eat so many vegetables. Um, so... I just think my my relationship with food has improved tremendously, and I've just relaxed about everything. Well, there are a lot of bloggers out there, of course, who are not relaxed. Uh, one of our favorites right. here is Vanny Harry, who has labeled oh, herself the food babe. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure that she's uh, high on your list of favorites, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I mean, her her motto, of course, is if you can't pronounce it, if you can't spell it, you should not eat it. Silly. And, uh, Silly. I mean, there there is some sort of far-fetched truth in that because, you know, they when you look at the label and, and the more additives you have, the more chemical names, they the more likely it is that you're looking at a less nutritious food. That's true. But, but yeah. the suggestion that you should judge the... Uh, safety or efficacy of a of a chemical by the number of syllables in its name, of course, is ludicrous. Well, you know what else is very offensive is that it's so elitist. I mean, there are a lot of people out there who don't have enough to eat and can't afford to buy organic everything or grass-fed meat or, you know, they... They sometimes go to the food bank and get a bag of chips and a pack of cookies and some pasta, and that's what they have to eat. And to say that those people are committing a sin against their health um, because of what they're eating is disgusting. I mean, 
I think we need to recognize our own privilege in the foods that we get to select because we have the money and not criticize people who don't have what we have. Have you ever had any kind of confrontation with these these people? Because, I mean, we have. Uh, people like the Food Bafe have asked for our emails, you know, trying to connect us to, to some vested interest. Uh, the U.S. Uh, right to know organization, uh, a, a very anti-GMO, has uh, also accosted us and caused some mischief. Have you ever had anything like that because you were saying the truth, but they didn't like the truth? Yeah. Absolutely. I had a one of the people who was selling one uh, this cost, weight loss coffee uh, <clears throat> over in the UK reported me to my regulatory body saying that I was um, guilty of professional misconduct because I was basically not not saying nice things about the coffee that he the company he worked for, um, which obviously didn't go anywhere because <clears throat> I wasn't guilty of professional misconduct. Um, so that was very stressful. Um, and I, I do get trolled a lot online, um, but, you know, it's part of the job. I, I stand by what I write and what I tweet and what I say. Um, and uh, most of the time I find well, basically all of the time, I find that I'm trolled or criticized uh, or confronted by people who are armchair scientists or have no nutrition or or any other scientific training whatsoever. Great. Well, thanks, Abby. I mean, we've run out of time. We could be chatting here for hours because I think we have any common interests. And, and uh, we'll hook up again uh, in the future, maybe in the, in the new year. So thanks very much for joining us. That was Abby Langer. She's a registered dietitian. She's in uh, Toronto. Uh, you can check her out on her website. I believe it was abbylanger.com. abbylanger.com. You can Google her name and you'll yes. find her. And she tells us not to mess with science. We tell you that all the time. You've been listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs> 